podcast one production. I've been in search of the perfect interest rate because the rate I've been getting from my business banking account is nearly non-existent. It's less than 1%. Now, it's said that with the Reserve Bank's cash rate so low, that's the rate it pays banks for overnight deposits, that because it's so low, the banks can't offer a decent interest rate on savings. And I remember when I moved here nearly 20 years ago, getting 3 or 4% interest on my savings in my big four savings account. That was before I started a business. It was great. I took that extra cash and sent it off to my dad in America, a little extra help for him. As the cash rate fell, though, all of that interest dried up and disappeared. And I didn't really give it that much of a thought until quite recently when I looked at some of the fine print in a service agreement that I'd been sent by a neobank and it quoted an interest rate on savings accounts of two and a quarter percent. That seems huge. And I immediately began to transfer funds from another neobank account where I keep some funds for my business into that savings account. Or I tried to do it. Every time I tried to make a transfer, it seemed to go through. And then it came up with a message saying I'd gone over my daily transfer limit and that the transfer had failed. Only... I hadn't transferred anything that day. So, okay, maybe that's just a glitch. Let's try it again. Same thing. And again, no. All right, let me just check. Have I transferred anything? No, I wasn't confused. I hadn't transferred anything. So my neobank wasn't letting me move my money. That's that's sort of a nightmare scenario. And yes, We know that the Australian government guarantees account holders' deposits to a quarter million dollars, so I wasn't going to lose any money. But but if I can't move my money, do I really have it? I I honestly started freaking out a bit, and I sent a message via the app to the Neobank. And within 20 minutes, they got back to me. They told me they'd received the message, that they would look into it. And then, well, I waited and waited and waited. And I have to tell you, with this much money on the line, that wait was excruciating. Because I'm just waiting to hear something, anything from my neobank. I tried messaging them again. Any news? Silence. And at this point, I'm getting fairly cranky. I'm getting freaked out. I'm angry. So I went right to the top. It's the nice thing about a neobank. Most of them are small enough right now that you can fire off a message to the CEO. And I got a reply and an apology and some information. Turns out I had found a bug in their updated transfer software. It'd soon be fixed. I was glad to learn all of that and still a bit cranky that I had to chase the CEO down to learn any of it. And I wondered if I'd really needed to move money quickly, say to pay a bill, make an important time-sensitive purchase, what would have happened? Could that have risked my business? And that moment, that singular, unexpected, unpleasant moment led to this one. Because if that was happening to me, well, I can't be the only one. Banking used to be boring. All those years of being stale, flat, and profitable, they're giving way to a new kind of banking, one that's still evolving, still incomplete, still in beta. Welcome to the age of the beta bank. 
G'day, I'm Mark Pesci from the Next Billion Seconds podcast, and together with banking futurist Andrew Davis, we're exploring this new world of neobanks. That's a fancy word meaning new banks, and we're learning how we'll be saving, spending, and investing over the next billion seconds. In this episode of Beta Bank, we're looking at business banking. That's the banking that keeps the economy humming along. Let's welcome Andrew Davis back to the show. Hello, Andrew. G'day, Mark. It's great to be back. All right, so Andrew, let's be clear. I found a bug in my neobank and they fixed it, thank goodness. So I could move my money around. I got that great interest rate, all good. But if I were in the middle of a business transaction, could that have been disastrous? I mean, not having access to my funds. I think this really highlights two things. Firstly, that there's a level of perfection we all expect when it comes to using banking services. We just, yes, it has to work. If it doesn't work... (laughs) then I'm going to get very cranky. Well, at least from a digital perspective. Yeah. Now, admittedly, that this is one of the area that the incumbents do quite well as they have the maturity of business systems and processes to ensure that all of the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted before something is rolled out. But that doesn't mean that things don't go wrong. And we see that happen occasionally, but almost always the fundamentals are there and work well. And Andrew, this reminds me, because this does happen, and it can be bad, that at Christmas time in 2019, so two Saturdays before Christmas, all of the cash register infrastructures at Meyer went out. So people couldn't pay for the purchases, and they had people literally leave the line, just drop their purchases saying, I'll come back later. Yeah, like that's going to happen. But this is the, if there is a failure at a business level with the banking features, that has a huge impact on the business. Yes, in fact, as we see, society can come to a grinding halt. (laughs) But the second aspect here is that for almost every person in Australia, this is the first time that we've seen a brand new bank come to market, built from the ground up with new technology, new business processes and new teams. So in many ways, we're going through this kind of Kickstarter period with the neobanks. All right, you've used the word Kickstarter. So Kickstarter was this great crowdfunding platform. Someone could propose an idea and then raise money for it. I actually did that back in 2012. I had a great idea. We raised quarter million dollars for it to build this little light thing. And a lot of these products either get to market and fall over or fall over before they get to market or fall over at some point after they get to market because it's actually hard to do this. It's hard to build hardware products. It's hard to start a bank. That's right. So through Kickstarter, the consumer or the person who's on the end of that campaign, they're making a commitment to sign up for that service before seeing the end product and before knowing if it's going to meet your expectations. So in many ways, these neobanks are at a similar stage. By promoting their products pre-launch, and now everyone that has an account is at the 1.0 phase of their product deployment roadmap. And that can mean that the end user, being you in this case, sometimes bears the brunt of that immaturity and imperfection. And I do wonder how many more times I'll encounter bugs. Now, in our last episode, we talked about retail banking. That's the kind of banking that you and I do in our day-to-day lives. We're making payments, we have bank accounts, we might get a small loan, and we've sort of broke it down into those silos. But most of us also work for businesses. Most of us patronize businesses. So how does banking meet the needs of businesses? Is that very different from retail banking? Mm, Well, Mark, those three fundamentals still exist. All businesses still need to send or receive money. They need to have a bank account. 
and more than likely they need to borrow money to fund growth in their business. But what we see is that with small businesses, there's an added complexity or richness of features across those three areas. Let's talk payments as an example. As a small business, if you want to allow someone to pay you by credit card, you need to be sponsored by a bank as a merchant. In other words, the bank basically has to trust that you're not selling drugs, that you can handle it if someone says, actually, there's I'm returning this and therefore there's going to be a chargeback on the card. All of those conditions have to be satisfied for the bank to allow you to receive credit card payments. That's right, because ultimately the bank is responsible for ensuring integrity of the system and the component parts of which merchants are a key aspect. And equally, if you want to allow someone to shop with you online via your website, then not only perhaps do you need to be sponsored by a bank as a merchant, but then you need a payment gateway to facilitate those transactions real time, 24 by 7. And this is, I guess, one of the great advantages of, say, eBay, which is that you can, as a merchant, you don't have to go through any of that because eBay is going to, they'll take a cut, but they're also going to handle all the payments infrastructure for you. That's right. So you sign up to them once and they bring all of those other capabilities into the platform. Okay. And it's similar with BPay. So you have to be sponsored by your bank as a BPay biller to be able to accept BPay payments from your customers. So the fundamentals are the same, but now we're seeing things from a different perspective. So we have this idea then that a business has to be, I guess, much more forthcoming with the bank about what it's doing, how it's doing it, why it's doing it, because the bank is taking more risk with a business customer than they are with a retail customer? That's right. They're taking risk not just on the lending side because business loans are, of course, far greater in size and dollar value than consumer loans, but businesses are really tapping into this core infrastructure in a very different way than consumers are when they do transactions across the network. And businesses, I guess, carry a lot of responsibility when they're given that access to that infrastructure uh, on behalf of the banks, and therefore that's why the banks are doing a far greater level of due diligence and to get that understanding of each individual business. So when you say due diligence, what you mean is there's, there's literally a banker who's probably assigned to work with that business, whose job it is to understand that business as well as possible? So traditionally, if the business wants to become a merchant, they would fill in forms, and those forms would go to a separate team. And then the business has sent lots of documentation about what it means to be a merchant, they're provided with uh, the merchant terminal and so on and so on. So there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, complexity and cost in addition to the business banker who is the guy that is meeting with the business, taking them to lunch, playing golf and so on. There's a lot of expenses here. And, and this is quite interesting because in our last episode, you were very clear that you told us that, in fact, the big four are making most of their profits from retail banking. And yet, the more we hear about business banking, which is not making the profits, it sounds like it's expensive. So, is business banking more of a sideshow for the banks than retail? Actually, it can be far from that. The business banking division is normally second in line in terms of the scale of profits. But depending on economic cycles, sometimes the business banking division can make more money across the big four than the consumer banking division. All right. So when, when we're having a boom time, like when there's a mining boom or a building boom or whatever, then so much money is flowing through construction companies or through miners or whatever, that in fact, they're the ones who are generating the profits for the bank. So in some ways... It's the cushion. Either the business bank's going to be doing well for a bank or the retail bank's going to be doing well and they can sort of balance things out. 
Well, in a large diversified bank, you want that degree of variation because when times are tough, the consumer bank may slump, but the mining side of the business through your business bank and corporate bank may pick up. But actually, what we see here is in the context of business banking, why it's so vital is that there's around 1 million small businesses in Australia, Mm. and they account for about 35% of Australia's economy. But in addition to that, from a banking perspective, as we talked about, it's also there's a greater depth of banking products and services that businesses need from their banks. So the bank actually has a greater number of income streams that they earn from these business customers versus a typical consumer customer. So this might be, so it could be a business loan, but it could also be trade finance, which is where you actually are doing trade between nations and all of that. That's right. Could be foreign exchange income. A business client would typically have multiple accounts with each bank and so on it goes. Well, okay, so there's actually a whole lot going on here. In a moment, we'll hear from one of the founders of Australia's first neobank aimed directly at business customers. Okay, so Andrew, here we are. We understand that business banking is big, it's complex. So where is it going? Well, Mark, actually, it's really interesting at the moment and exciting. So when we hear about different neobanks coming to market, whether that's here in Australia or elsewhere in the world, it typically refers to an offering for consumers. But in this case, in Australia, we've got a brand new bank coming to market exclusively focused on the business banking sector. All right. So it's really a neobank that's just business. Like if I'm a retail customer, you you kind of don't want to do business with them. They don't really have anything to offer. That's right. They're focused purely on that segment. So I first met today's guest, Alex Twigg, in 2015 when he was the executive in charge for financial services at Woolworths. Wait, wait, you mean the grocery store? That's right. Okay. And what's really interesting there is that here's a good example of a non-bank brand leveraging its relationship with customers to do something very different. Mm. And prior to that, Alex was the co-founder and CEO of Ubank, which was at that time a new direct bank launched by the NAB in 2010. Okay, so and Ubank is in a sense the template because it was all digital, it was you know access through an app, that it kind of set the tone for what we would expect new banks to come. So even though it's a decade ago, it sort of becomes the shining example for what banks are going to evolve into. Well, definitely in Australia, that's the case. But prior to that, Alex was also part of Egg in the UK and that set a much earlier precedent for the path that we're now on. And that, that actually makes a lot of sense because a lot of what we've learned about neobanking, we inherited from a decade's worth of work in the UK. That's right. And we have other examples of the Australian financial services market mirroring what's happened in the UK. So for this episode, we have Alex in his current capacity, which is co-founder and CIO of Judo Bank. Alex, it's great to have you here and welcome to BetaBank. Thank you very much, Andrew and Mark. It's uh, wonderful to be here. So, Alex, as mentioned, you were the co-founder and CEO of Ubank, which launched in Australia around 10 years ago. What differences do you see in the market between then and now? I think the the, the market has evolved incredibly since then. In that 10-year period, when we launched in Australia uh, with Ubank, you know, the, the digital bank was a new thing. It was for the digital natives, which is a very small portion of the community. Um, now, digital banking is for the majority. In fact, 
The vast majority of people want to do all of their banking digitally and the move away from sort of that branch-based accounting model has almost completely disappeared. And so Judo is very much a business bank. What does neobanking mean for Judo? Uh, Well, we actually talk about ourselves as being a challenger bank as opposed to a neobank. So what we mean by that is we've a very uh, high-touch driven by high-tech model, uh, which means... If you think back to the way that banking used to be done in the business banking sector, you know, 10, 10, even 20 years ago, it's all about relationships. It's all about really understanding your customer's business, understanding your customer, uh, understanding how their business operates and how you as a professional can actually help them to grow their business. Through the industrialization of, of banking over the last 10, 15 years, you know, that's changed. All of that relationship has almost entirely disappeared. Everything's centralised. Everything's commoditized. Um, nobody really understands uh, how those SME customers are facing their day-to-day challenges and what they need help with. Judo is, is about filling that gap. It's about putting real, highly trained, experienced bankers back in the front line with customers, uh, understanding that business and having long-term relationships with customers. And it's about going back to the the banking that we used to do about judgment, real judgment-based lending, not algorithmic lending, not of tick form-based lending. You know, it's about really understanding the collateral that's in the business, which is where all banks currently sit, is how much collateral do you have in your property? I've got a million dollars. Okay, we'll lend you 80% of that. And that's where the conversation pretty much ends. What we're about is understanding the cash flows in the business, understanding the capability of the management team, understanding you know how that business operates and what the challenges are in it, and lending against that. We see that the other neobanks are challenger banks. When they're focused on consumer, when they're doing retail banking, they really have this very strong focus on the digital experience. Like, here's the app, use the app, the app is wonderful. The app is how you build a relationship with us, right? That they're really leaning into that. How does that then apply to business customers, if they have these different qualities, if they have to be known intimately about their cash flows, about their balance sheets, about their assets, how does that come over? How is that expressed? So look, um, the digital component um, fits just as much in the transactional element of the SME banking as it does in in the retail banking space. But it's not the primary desire or need that that customer has. You know, when you think about retail banking, you know, I, I have, you know, very three very simple rules that I've learned over the years and, and developed. Um, uh, rule number one, banking is really, 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 really boring, right? No, nobody in the world has ever got out of bed, leapt out of bed in the morning going, I'm going banking today, right? It just doesn't happen, right? Rule number two is it's really, 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 really important. Um, you know, the whole economies, all economies, the global economies runs on banking, right? If it doesn't exist, it's a real problem, right down to being able to pay your grocery bill. It's a real problem. And then rule number three, which is the sort of interplays between all of those three things, is we as people, generally speaking, are relatively lazy. Mm. And if something's boring, mm-hmm. you don't generally want to try and do it, right? You know, and you're not really interested in it. But because it's important, you have to, and therefore it's a chore. 
And this is where digital banking has come in because, and this is where the neobanks try and play, because they try and remove that friction. They try and take away the... And even gamify it, right? Even gamify it. Turn the boring into actually something that's fun and it's got achievement and badges and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. The really interesting thing, though, to to sort of lead on from that is, um, you know, as an industry, we spend billions of dollars a year trying to create the perfect way to do something that nobody wants to do. It's quite ironic, really. (laughs) All right, so, I mean, if we're confronted with the fact that the users of the bank are doing it only because they have to, does that mean that your job is to make that experience either as pleasant as possible or as minimal as possible or some combination Yes and no. So yes, you have to try and minimise it. You have to try and take away the chore and the effort. But also, you have to try and add value back into that equation, right? So, um, you know, we went through the, uh, you know, the 2000s with um, uh, trying to have a categorization of, of expenses and, you know, uh, trying to uh, deliver uh, better ways to allocate your money into buckets and the rest of it, right? You know, which again is really useful um, for people that are interested in that. Mm. For most people, it's like, great, you told me I spent too much on beer and fags last month. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, so what you, but you, what you really want is the insight that can be generated from those analytics. You know, and this is where I think the neobanks can play really strongly. You know, um, if uh, your uh, your neobank app can come back to you and say, you know, we've noticed you're paying too much for your electricity bill. We've just changed that for you and it's going to be 20% cheaper each month. Wow, that's a whole different experience. You stop doing banking and you start doing living. Right. So, Alex, if business banking is all about getting a better understanding of the client and having that intimate relationship, what does that mean for things like the rise of cloud accounting systems? Um, You know, we see more and more businesses making use of those great capabilities, but does that ultimately represent a benefit for you as a bank or does it somehow represent a threat if they know more about the customer than you do? So what you're saying is if I'm using Zero, for example, which is sort of the big example here, and because all of the data about my business, my expenses, my liabilities, my assets are all going into it, Zero actually has this enormous insight That's into right. my business. And in fact, they may have that insight in advance of the bank realizing your financial position. Great, great question. Um, it's brilliant for businesses, right? Uh, in the same way that, you know, we strived over the last 10, 10 years to deliver that um, assisted process for retail customers, mm-hmm. you know, the cl- that's almost equivalent to the cloud accounting platforms for businesses, right? Um, you know, helping them analyze and manage their money better and working through that process, automating it. Because nobody's ever said like, you know, I'm going to do my cloud accounting today, right? You know, it's it's not going to happen, right? Um, but, but, you know, you can provide, you know, those cloud accounting packages can provide, you know, the services of, you know, a, a senior CFO or an accountant to those smaller businesses can really drive their profitability and their, and their efficiencies. From our perspective as an SME banker, it's fantastic because now we've got um, data, potentially access to data that uh, we would never have had before, quicker, faster, more reliable. Customers don't need to tr- hand it over to us any longer. We They can give us permission to go and get it direct from there. Um, you know, we can actually 
the professional bankers that have that relationship with customers can be looking at that data constantly and can be having and building the relationship around that data. So it's great. So we don't really see it as a threat at all. In fact, we see it as a massive benefit. And, you know, the the, the, the really difficult thing that um, everybody has to remember is, and I know, you know, it's not popular, but banking is actually really quite complicated. Lending money to people is a particularly large amounts of money to complex businesses is a really difficult and professional thing that needs to be done. You know, just slapping an app out there or doing a cloud accounting but doesn't give you the, the, the skills to be able to do that. Um, and that's really what Judo's, you know, USP is all about. It's about those key um, human-based skills-based lending judgment assessments that can be made for businesses. But this is the interesting rub here because what we're seeing with all the retail banks is they're using lots and lots of automation so they can drive their costs down so that, in fact, I'm not touching a person most of the time and most of the time I don't need to. But what you're saying is that actually for a good business to be served by a good bank, there has to be a lot of human intelligence in the mix. So does that mean that at some level both your costs and your business is very different than a retail new bank? Uh, another really great question. So, you know, when we look at, you know, when, when people first look at our business model, they go, wow, that's going to be expensive, right? Um, but the great opportunity of the today's technology and having a, a blank sheet of paper is that we've been able to create um, systems and processes that you know nullify the expenses that you'd normally see behind the banker. What the big banks are struggling with at the moment is they've got all of these baked in enormous technology costs and operational costs um, in their business and that can't be easily removed. And so the only place they can go to remove cost is the front line, which ironically is the place where they need to overinvest. But from, you know, from Judo's perspective, the chance of starting again, the chance of that blank sheet and the, you know, the incredible uplift in technology means that we've been able to build a, a completely cloud native bank from day one. You know, we've minimised our uh, capital expenditure. Um, everything is um, on a, a per-use basis. We don't have, you know, uh, you know, the tech team in in Judo for running an entire bank is seven people. Alex, one really interesting example here is trade finance. Like when I'm trying to do business, say, with China or Japan or something, and the parties don't know each other, and there's all of this banking infrastructure in place to make sure that basically no one gets cheated out of the deal. And right now, to do that with a bank, there's just paperwork and people looking after it. Is it possible to start to rethink those systems for a challenger bank so that you're using a lot of automation where those people are in the banks today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly the sort of thing that's ripe for automation and, um, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, getting those processes right um, and making, because currently today, you know, banks have thousands of people shuffling bits of paper to make that work, right? Um, in the future, we should be able to, you know, minimize that to virtually nothing, uh, we ought to be able to create a much more reliable and better, faster experience for customers and for their suppliers. Because that's just as, you know, if you think about this, this is an ecosystem. And if you th if you get that ecosystem dynamics right, 
um, you can really start to change an industry. Right, and it really does increase the flow of trade through economies. Correct, and that's what it's all about. And that's the distinct advantage that you have being a brand new bank building these systems and processes from the ground up. Absolutely right. We've been able to think about those ecosystems from the start uh, and being able to build in that capability from the beginning. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. It's been great to have you part of BetaBank. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure. Andrew, one of the most interesting things that I've just heard from Alex is that, in fact, what we're seeing is that business banking is now making this move back into being very human. Like, I have a business account with one of the big four. I have been able to do every single bit of that online, not particularly easily, and it took time to get everything approved, but I have never actually had to go to a branch, which is different from the last time I did a banking account where I actually had to go to a branch, present all these details, and took a couple of weeks to get it approved. So that was better. But I'm basically able to keep all of that at arm's distance. And what Alex seems to be saying is, in fact, we need to come full circle and we need to bring people back into this loop. Does that tell us that the future of business banking is actually a lot more human than we might think from looking at retail banking? Mm. I think what we will see is that the banking components of running your business can be automated, can be digitized, can just happen seamlessly in the background. But ultimately, you want your bank to understand the intricacies of your business, to understand what it looks like today, to understand what your aspirations are to grow your business and where you want it to be two, three, five years from now. And that requires the human interaction. So that's why, to Alex's point, we're seeing now this emphasis being placed on developing those relationships and maintaining those relationships as human-to-human interactions. But I guess the question is, and I know this from working with software companies, is that humans are expensive and they don't scale, right? You can't just turn up a dial and all of a sudden you have a whole forest of humans. You have to bring them in, you have to train them, you have to give them the right tools, you have to see whether they're going to work out. So does that mean that if Judo does become a successful challenger bank, they want to call it a challenger bank rather than a neobank, I'm fine with either term. Does that mean that that process is going to be a lot slower than for a retail bank? Well, historically, when banks have had teams of relationship managers, it's not uncommon for a large percentage of their time to be spent doing back office work, Mm. filling in forms, providing reports, doing compliance and so on, which arguably technology can do a lot better today. So actually, I think what it means in the future is that these relationship managers, business bankers, whatever you want to call them, will spend a much greater proportion of their time out in the field, understanding with clients, meeting them, being in their business, talking to them. So actually, one business banker could account for a larger number of clients going forward because they've got more time to focus on each client than maybe today where those ratios are a lot lower and therefore a lot less efficient. Wow, so we're really seeing that Retail banking is becoming more automated as far as the customer is concerned, but business banking is going to become more human as far as the customer is concerned. All right, we have gotten ourselves sorted with retail neobanking. We've now gotten ourselves sorted with business neobanking, neobanks like Judo. Is that the end to the story? Not at all, Mark. In fact, it's just the beginning All of the Australian banks are dealing with new directives to open their immense store of data to their customers. 
And so that's a real game changer for the industry and a topic of our next episode of Better Bank. If you want to learn more about business neobanks, cruise on over to our website at betabank.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's betabank.show. If you'd like to listen to any of my other podcasts like Cryptonomics, The Next Billion Cars, or The Next Billion Seconds, just open up your favorite podcasting app and search for Mark Pesci. That's P-E-S-C-E Pesci. Big thanks to Alex Twig of Judobank for coming on to our show. Betabank was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Andrew Davis, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nicolich. Theme music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, search Mark Pesci Betabank, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Thank you for listening.